0: areas of government bbc news when politicians are asked to choose what popular music they like they usually cite the most fashionable beat combo of the time in order to impress any young people who may be listening in half an hour we find out if nick clegg falls into the same trap and kate Adie reveals a penchant for protest that's the music group at half past eleven but now on Radio 4, the journalist John Ronson continues his series with John Ronson on states of mind. It contains strong language from the start.
1: Here's a flashback to our last series. It's a year and a half ago, and I'm interviewing David Shaler, the one time MI5 officer who was imprisoned for passing classified information to the newspapers, and then he became a famous conspiracy theorist. When somebody who was actually there at the moment. Of the explosion, rather than somebody who sits at home on the internet and theorises, comes and confronts the theorists. Why do the conspiracy theorists get so angry and so personal?
2: Um, well, I think again you're trying to make this to be the case, but I have to
1: say, David Chaler believes that the London bombs of July seventh, two thousand and five, were an inside job perpetrated by the British government. That's what we're fighting about.
2: And I see, I think well, so probably, t- I'm, I'm getting the same sort of vibe off you here, John. That yeah, you that- think it's nonsense, you haven't seen the evidence, you see. But and you, this is the problem we're in, because but are you a viewpoint about the viewpoint power- arrived at without evidence is prejudice. And ta- to say that Muslims carried out 9 11, those three guys from Leeds and one from Aylesbury, 7 evidence, 7, you mean? Sorry, 7 7, sorry, 7 7, seven the, the four guys they supposed to have carried out 7-7. The evidence is simply not there to say it. What to about, say what they about, did it. To say they did it. What about the video? Was that is set It's racist, John. It's racist. You're being racist against Muslims if you think those three guys carried out that attack on the evidence there.
1: Oh, fuck off. <laughs> <laughs> Do you... <Come> on, <laughs> it's what I... Uncontrollably feel as if I should say to you, though, well, for so many reasons. Can we include the recording of that in the actual
2: interview, please? Because, or can I have a recording of that to play to people now? Because I, think I don't we, think John here is actually being an objective interviewer at all. This is very, very personal, John.
1: The interview went out a year and a half ago and the truth is it did well for us we had a lot of emails congratulating us they said we'd struck a blow for rationality the interview played out on national american radio too it was a hit and then unexpectedly a few weeks later david shaler announced he was the messiah he held a press conference outside parliament sky news came david i'm here with an open mind (laughs) um (laughs)
3: What can I expect?
2: Uh, Well, I know that people will find this absolutely extraordinary because I was an atheist three years ago, and I would find it extraordinary if somebody suddenly said, I'm the Messiah. Uh, But the journey I've been through has been a long and involved journey. But the key points of of that are, is that there are ancient documents showing that phonetically, someone called David Shaler or Shaler is the Messiah. Now, when you put that in conjunction with the work I've done over the last ten years, standing up for truth and justice, and I'm called David Shaler, you don't have to be a brilliant journalist or intelligence officer to put two and two together and make four. After I'd been to the crop circle and accepted in my heart I was the messiah, I felt a sense of peace that I'd never actually felt in my life before, because everything that had gone before that made sense, and everything that was to come was simple. The mission was there in front of me. It was up to me to do it.
1: There was a woman called Belinda there in the audience outside Parliament, she told me she was David Shaler's former landlady. At one point she tried to interrupt him and he said, how dare you interrupt the messiah. It is your
2: business, absolutely. I'm on the
4: streets telling people that I'm... But it
1: becomes my business when you interrupt me.
4: Okay, all right, carry on.
2: It didn't seem that rude to interrupt you. Uh, well, I think what we understand that uh, there's a lot of past stuff here going on, and uh, I am trying to, as I say, being the saviour here, trying to explain how people can access eternal life. So people who want to gain eternal life would probably like to hear that. I'm sure that they would want to hear that from me okay. without interruption. Well, I'll take questions at the end, of course, but I'm trying to talk and drag a very important story across here. And obviously you don't believe it at the moment, but I, I believe, uh, you know, people will come to see this as a very important story.
4: Well, it's, so I that, think it's actually rather a sad story, David, because I think you've, you've, you know, according to Messiah culture, if you like, if there is such a thing, or prophet culture, you're you're making several mistakes. One is that you're not taking time out to really think about your mission and meditate and, you know, you're you're coming public far too quickly. Secondly, you're not gathering a following around you. Thirdly, you're announcing yourself, whereas it should be for other people to say he is the one and start to sort of bow down or whatever people do. But you're coming out and sort of throwing it at everybody that I am am he or it or the one. Why are you an expert on the science? That is, this is history, it's not just me, this is just, you know, what other prophets have done in the past. And how, they, how they have come out with their special mission.
2: No, I, I disagree with that. My version of history is very, very okay, different well, from that.
4: I mean, you know, other people... Well, I say to, be... to you
2: again, Belinda, do not judge. Do not judge You're wrongly acting, and I'm do not... not judge the Messiah. You say it's a sad story, Belinda. I'm sorry, it's not. Why it's a story concerned? of spiritual because redemption.
4: somebody with huge talents and first-class mind, who is really doing extremely well along the track that he was going, suddenly blowing the whole thing by going off on some esoteric, you know, trip that nobody else can follow him. And then coming and spewing out all sorts of stuff that people just can't connect with except, you know, on the level of ridicule, which is a terrible shame.
2: I know I'm the Messiah it's up to you to look into your own heart and find out why you can't accept that why you feel the need to come to the messiah and tell him he's not the messiah why you feel the need to judge the messiah i'm not
4: saying saying you're not the messiah i'm just saying you're not behaving in a very messiah like way according to the precedents for such things
2: well i don't think you have any idea i mean there is no precedent for a messiah because i am the only messiah if you know the true esoterics it's the messiah who comes at the end of the changing universe other people were prophets but not messiahs Mm.
1: wanted to try and make sense of what had happened to David Shaler in those few weeks between our blow-up on the radio and his announcement that he was the messiah. He seemed like a totally different person to me. He had believed in the kind of delusion that millions of people share. According to a University of Ohio poll, 36% of Americans think 9-11 was some kind of inside job, but now his delusions had skyrocketed. After the press conference, I visited Derek Draper, he used to be a New Labour spin doctor and now he's a psychotherapist. He said the conspiracy theorist Shayla was actually a very close relative of the Messiah Shayla.
5: I suspect that you got him on a day when he was slightly more in touch with reality and looking at the world as if it was a conspiracy rather than a complete fantasy you see what i mean you see I,
1: I assumed actually that the change in david taylor from kind of pre-messiah to messiah mm. occurred within those few weeks right Ah,
5: well, well i suspect not you see what i suspect was that when he's in full-blown messiah mode that's when he's least in touch with reality although of course it's worth mentioning the obvious point which is that millions of people around the world think that a man came along one day who said i am the messiah and he was the messiah (laughs) so it's all kind of relative really but let's for the purposes of this discussion assume that david shelley is not the messiah he thinks he is he's sure of it when he's in this mode if you like
1: he talks very fast i noticed that about right, him. really right. really
5: fast talk well that's out. probably because there is a a world in his head which is very vivid and very you know i mean these are alternative realities i mean they're as vibrant and complex and contradictory as our reality is and oftentimes people suffering like that want to kind of get it out they want to try and explain it to you in this and that's a lot of some people think that it's actually about trying to get this inside world out some to evacuate it in a way
1: i told Derek draper that the strange thing was just how ordinary david shaylor sounded despite the fast talking even though the things he said were so bizarre he said that's not so strange
5: even the most psychotic or schizophrenic or to use the vernacular mad Person will have parts of their mind that are not those things. So people are a mixture. And by the same token, the most supposedly sane person will have parts of their mind that, especially under pressure, can be quite mad.
0: Hallelujah.
1: Still, this turn of events has led me to a quite uncomfortable thought. It had felt fine to attack the conspiracy theorist Shayla, whereas it didn't feel fine at all to attack the new, sadder Shayla. It reminds me of how much everyone enjoys the early rounds of The X Factor when we get to watch the delusional people who think they're talented but they aren't. These people often seem delusional in a palatable way. Are producers like Ringmasters searching for people who have just the right sort of delusions to be entertaining? Here's the television critic, Charlie Brooker, who has a TV show called Screenwipe. <laughs>
3: People on reality shows and appearing on almost any sort of TV show are going to be exhibitionists of a sort. And so where do you define where that kind of behaviour becomes too unusual and you think it's tipped over into the realm of mental illness? If I switched on Channel 4 and there was a documentary about somebody who had a mental illness and it was charting their breakdown and possible subsequent recovery... Or maybe not. Would I think of that as exploitative? Probably not, because of the way it's handled.
1: Exactly. And the fact that it's filmed over a long period, and, mm. and there's a more authoritative voiceover.
3: Yeah. Because I remember watching The X Factor, the recent series, they had a sequence where there was this very fat girl who came in and was wearing a dress that her dad had specially made for her, and she starts singing. And so and it was
1: she, like a sort of silver wedding dress, wasn't Yeah. It?
3: And she looked ridiculous. It was quite tragic, and then they just sit there and sort of go, you know, you're rubbish. And she starts crying, and then her family come in and remonstrate with the judges. And it was incredibly cruel. Apart from anything else, when the family were arriving, they put the theme tune from the flumps over the footage of them walking over this bridge on their way to the thing. And it's cruelly funny, but it's sort of too cruel. If you're the office joker and you know that by turning up with a plastic bum on your head and spinning around singing Eye of the Tiger, you're going to be on TV and you want to do that, fine. I suppose it's how do they differentiate between that man and somebody who is doing that in their spare time because they've got some issue. We did a thing on Screenwipe where we set up our own miniature talent show and we put an advert out saying, do you want 40 seconds of fame? come along, and do anything for 40 seconds, and you could be on TV. And our justification for doing it was that actually what we were interested in doing was saying to people, why are you here? Can you think of any famous people who are happy? Was one of the questions, and most of them went, no. You know, I think somebody said, bono, or something (laughs) like that. But apart from that, most people said no. That was our justification for doing it, but we were also inviting people in. And it was really odd, it was very uncomfortable, because... The idea was that I was going to be sitting there and I was going to be doing a sort of Simon Cowell impression where I was being horrible to people. And the first person comes in and I say, you know, why are you here? And she says, "Uh, my best friend died. And I had a dream in which she told me I should follow my dreams. I want to become a singer. And once somebody said that, I found it personally very difficult to then do anything other than say that was lovely that song was lovely and you're brilliant and thank you very much saying anything else would seem unpleasant and then the next person comes in and you say to them you know why are you here and they say well i had a terrible disease and i've just got over it and then (laughs) and again you think oh right and then the next person comes in and you know uh, my mother died so everybody's got a tragic story this has become a thing where people know either they're doing this consciously like maybe they're sitting in a room outside and they've gone to lots of these things and everybody's said well i'm going to say that (laughs) you know after you've heard about four or five of these sob stories you're sort of immune to it so the next person comes in and you're sort of almost in your head thinking all right what's this going to be you know is it what somebody drowned in front of you Um, i remember
1: when i first made a television program the editor was stitching somebody up in the edit suite making them look stupid mm-hmm. and i said to the producers and this a bit you know exploitative mm. and he said well look at it this way john one interviewee suffers but millions are entertained
3: yeah that's that's a justification of sorts isn't it yeah. that's uh yeah
1: Charlie Brooker. I wonder if there are lines of work where one sort of mental illness reaps rewards and another reaps failure. What about politics? What's the right and wrong sort of mental illness in politics? This is Hjal Bondovic. So, tell me about the 31st of August, 1998.
6: Yeah, what happened was that uh, the last weeks and days before that date, I felt that I was not good. I was more and more sad, lack of sleep reduced my energy, and I got a stronger and stronger feeling of anxiety. So what happened that special day, 31st of August, 98, I remember it very well because it's also the birthday of my (laughs) wife, was that I had no energy to get up from the bed. So I was in the bed and my wife understood that something really wrong has happened and she called a good friend of us. He came, he said, I will call and bring with me a psychiatrist, a doctor and he did. And so they got me out of bed during the day and so they you were, were still in
1: bed during that time. What time uh, do you normally get out of bed?
6: Normally i go out between 7-7.30 in the morning, but this was, I think, 11-12 on the day, around lunchtime.
1: And 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 we should explain that at that moment you were the Prime Minister of Norway.
6: I was a Prime Minister, and so my Foreign Minister came. He asked me what has happened, and I told him very openly, I feel that I'm not able to work more as Prime Minister. (laughs) I, I have decided to step down, I said, and he said, no, no, stop. You must not take such a decision if you are ill. And he convinced me not to do that. The doctor took me out in the kitchen. I had so much anxiety that it was difficult for me to sit uh, down on the chair for a long time. And I was walking around and he said that you have a depressive reaction. And so we called upon the Secretary General of the Prime Minister's office because we understood that we have to do something. We have to make a press release that the Prime Minister cannot come to office uh, next morning.
1: Do you remember what you were supposed to have been doing that day and the next day.
6: Oh, yes, I remember very well, because it was an important meeting in the government. It was about the next year's budget, and I was not able to go there. And we discussed, what shall we do now? And after some discussion, I made the decision myself. We make a press release and say it as it is. Why not? And I think the others, four people in the room, were more or less surprised. But we did so. You come out
1: and admit it
6: yeah mm. next morning we sent out this press release that I had a depressive reaction and that, that I had to take a break from my job. And of course, this was more breaking news in Norway than I expected. The deputy Prime Minister who had to take over for some time.
1: I must ask so, do you, do you think that yes. you became depressed because you were Prime Minister? Was it the being no, prime minister it's, that
6: it's It's much more complex than that.
1: So what brought it on? Was it coincidence that you were Prime Minister or was there any connection?
6: Yeah. I think there are two, three main reasons for this. The first, and in accordance to my doctor, the most important is that I, over some time, had experienced strong feeling of loss and grief. Because over a three years period, three of my best friends died, all of them, of brain cancer. Mm. And one of them was my brother-in-law. And grief is, according to experts in the field, very exhausting, more than I was aware of. And that was maybe the main reason. Another was that I did not, in fact, change my working method when I became Prime Minister.
1: We had the weight of Norway on your shoulders.
6: Yes. So I think I worked too much. So I think these things in combination were the main reasons why I got this depressive reaction.
1: You know, Tony Blair and other leaders have frequently said, if you knew what I know, all these secrets that our security forces tell us and so on, you wouldn't be able to sleep at nights." As a leader, did you know things that we folks down here would never know, and did that contribute to your depression?
6: Of course, as Prime Minister, I got very much secret information which I could not share with others. But I don't think this was a part of my uh, problem. I think the main reasons was that I mentioned earlier in the programme. Do you
1: think you're similar to other leaders? When you meet other leaders of countries, do you see in them kindred spirits? Or do you think you're unusual in your emotional makeup, for instance?
6: No, I think this is uh, rather common. We know that uh, in Western countries like uh, Norway, UK and others, 20 to 25% of the people have mental health problems during their life.
1: Have you ever been at a summit or a big meeting and you've actually taken another leader to one side and said, I've noticed in you mental health issues.
6: No, but what has happened is that some have come to me during receptions or meetings or dinners and pulled me aside and said I was so glad that you were open because I have had some mental health problems myself and that you were open was a help to me. But some did this in secret and have not been open themselves.
1: And did you seek re-election after Yes,
6: I did. And I ran again for the Parliament in 2001. I was elected to Parliament and I was also re-elected as Prime Minister and served for a new four years term up till 2005 when I stepped down. But I felt when I came back that through my weakness, so-called weakness, I became stronger as a human being and as a leader and in a way it enriched my life.
1: Yael Bondovic. His depression may have ultimately made him a better leader, but according to many psychotherapists, including Derek Draper, there's another personality disorder that's enormously beneficial to politicians. If a politician has it, it'll put them streets ahead of their opponents. Have you heard of a woman called Martha Stout?
5: (laughs) I have not, no, I don't think.
1: She wrote a book called The Sociopath Next Door. She's eminent. Oh, yeah. Uh, well, I mean, I just assume that everybody who works at Harvard right. is eminent. Right, right. Um, Probably they are. Yeah. So and her <laughs> uh, conclusion was that 4% of the population were sociopaths. Really? Wow. One in 25 people. Hmm. So, which means, kind of, if you're in a restaurant, there's going to be a sociopath somewhere. Yes, <laughs> in the, the one in your
5: class at school. Right, right, right. Yeah. One on the bus. Yeah. I think we can all believe that.
1: But... And here's the interesting mm. point, and this is where I, I think you might have a sort of mm-hmm. special insight. Mm-hmm. She said because of the nature of sociopathy, the fact mm-hmm. that, you know, it means you don't have a conscience, it mm-hmm. means you're, you're ambitious, you can kind mm-hmm. of, you know, not all sociopaths, but mm-hmm. a lot of them, mm-hmm. those are the people that rise to the top. So mm-hmm. if 4% of the population are sociopaths, you can conclude that a lot more than 4% of the mm-hmm. people in political power and business power are sociopaths. Right.
5: I mean, her view no. is
1: that so, then maybe sociopathy is what makes the world go around, in a sense.
5: Well, I think what she probably means, although I don't want to put words in her mouth, is that, in her view, 4% of people exhibit a lot of sociopathic tendencies. Do you see what I mean? On a continuum, because me and you exhibit sociopathic tendencies. So do I think that there are people who exhibit sociopathic tendencies... In politics, for example, as someone who used to work in politics, yes, absolutely, definitely. Would you see it on a daily basis? Yes, I mean, yeah, 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 I mean, without a doubt. I mean, I think, again, you see, it's, a, it's all a question of relativity. Because the truth is, politicians at times do have to be ruthless. Leaders do have to be ruthless. The issue is, in whose name and for what cause are they being ruthless? And is it actually balanced by other more, if you want to call them more human. I mean, it's all human, of course. That's the delusion is to think that it's not human if you're evil. But actually, that politicians need to be a mix. I mean, how these different levels and states and relative degrees of what we're calling mental illness manifest themselves in a world like politics is completely fascinating.
1: I mean, you went a little. You had a faraway look at the beginning of that answer, and I thought you were sort of remembering moments where you saw it happening. Is there some way you could tell me some of those moments without obviously calling a particular household name a sociopath? Because um, we're still talking very much in general. Well, I
5: can give you an example of where, and you're right, I mean, and the reason I don't want to, by the way, is that with my political hat on, which I'm still very interested in politics and care about it. I wouldn't mind labelling people willy-nilly. But with my psychotherapist hat on, I can't really do it. You know, it's not right for me to judge a person in that way. But I can think of someone who, in order that they... And it's no surprise, by the way, that this is all about a court, really. It's about courtiers, and Shakespeare writes about it brilliantly. And in this instance, one advisor to the king, the leader, in order to maintain just a little bit more influence than they otherwise would have had. So not have to do it because otherwise you'd be out in the cold, but just to get even 1% more, half a percent more influence, set out to stop their best friend, really. And they didn't have many friends, this person. Set out to stop their best friend getting a job, which not only was perfect for their best friend, but would have massively helped The common cause, right? And in that instance, in the instance that that person decided, actually, I am going to try and do this because for me, I will suffer by a tenth of a millionth of a degree, that's verging on the sociopathic because at that moment you've lost any empathy really with your friend and your cause, you know, and you're just out for yourself. And you were there watching it. Oh, yes, yes, I saw it happening and saw it... It took my breath away, actually. What makes you wonder if there's something mad going on is that they've convinced themselves it was, in fact, best for the best friend and best for the wider cause. That's the scary bit. Isn't it just a... Which, incidentally, is exactly the same, of course, if you look at it as what a psychopath, capital P, will say. The reason why I'm killing all these people is, of course because it's best for the world or, you know, it's what God wants or, you know, I'm cleaning up the world. It's a massive rationale in forensic psychology for psychopaths to go around killing people and that's why prostitutes are often killed. And But equally, it can be anybody.
1: Gosh, that's going on in the Parliament.
5: Well, look at what people do in politics. You'd have to be a bit mad to want to do it. But... That's- I'm in charge of life and death, you know. I, I, I get to... Choose, I mean, watch the West Wing. I get to choose whether the helicopter goes in and whether people die. Well, would you want to choose? Do you want to be the one to decide? Mm-mm. Right. What is it that makes someone say, actually, not only do I want to do, it, but I'm the man to do it. I'm going to be the one who'll be right. A personality disorder. Well, it's a bigger question. I know enough to know that I'm a bit suspicious.
1: I always believed that the world was being ruled by normal rational people that the mentally ill in society were basically the losers. But if Derek Draper is right, then exactly the opposite of that could be true, which is not a great thought.
3: John Ronson on States of Mind was presented and written by John Ronson and produced by Laura Parfit. It was a unique production for BBC Radio 4. Kate Adie and the Liberal Democrat leader Nick Clegg will be sharing their music taste with the music group next tonight. First, is Eddie Mayer. Hello. This interruption is to say thank you. If you're one of the people who's taken the time to write
1: on the IPM blog or send us an email. It's ideas from listeners that help us report
3: stories before they've appeared elsewhere. Last week's contributions made front-page news in the national press. Right now, we're working on more for the podcast and broadcast
1: this Saturday. Find out what we're planning and share what you know about it by going to your favourite search engine and looking for IPM blog.
3: All back to this evening, Charlotte Green will have the midnight news here on BBC Radio Four in half an hour. Before that, Phil Hammond invites you to join this week's music group.